1: Saturday Night Live is one of the longest-running shows on network television. The list of former cast members reads like a who's who of comedy. In the ever-changing cast, one man has been the glue that held it all together. Lorne Michaels. When he created Saturday Night Live in 1975, he didn't know if the show would even last a year. It's been almost four decades, and the show's become an American institution. There's a lot we all can learn from the man who started it all. In live TV, as in life, there are no second takes. You have to be able to not only work with chaos, but allow it to inspire you. And for that, you have to trust your instincts. To do that, and to do it well, is the mark of a master. Everybody has a story. And there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Lorne
2: Michaels. There was within us an incredible confidence that what we were doing was, if not good, at least what we liked and somehow important. It was about, do you believe we're getting to do this? What happened was that there was this little window in time. Remember that it it happened right after Watergate. A president had resigned. New York City had just gone bankrupt. The network was not in great shape all the institutions that would normally be the pillars of a society, everything was being questioned. And I think we represented the beginning of that. We were dealing with politics, we were dealing with music, we were dealing with film, we were all over the place. It's just sort of the nature of who I am that probably no door was closed. What that led to was it was an intoxicating sense of our own power and freedom. I was hired to do SNL April 1st, 1975, which was a sort of nice and auspicious day for a comedy show to begin. I spent three months rounding up the people who I wanted to work with. i loved love to leave the impression that I had a master plan. My only real plan was find the most talented people I could find. I used to say that the criteria was, it's two o'clock in the morning, you're walking down the hall, and you see that person coming, Do you duck into a closet because you really don't want to talk to that person or are you looking forward to it? It had to be people that made you laugh, but it also had to be people that you could drive cross-country with and not kill. But the core thing for me was the troupe. I thought because there'd be a guest star at the center of it, they'd get time to develop and to grow and the audience to get comfortable with them. I did not think at that time that they would ever become as big a stars as the host. But that was probably the hope. My mother used to always say that I always brought home strays. It could be an animal or it could be a kid at the school who, at the end of the afternoon in the the playground, you realize he didn't seem to have a place to go for dinner or whatever. It was a group of people who might not have had anything else in common except that I liked them all or thought there was something there. When I began in the office, it was literally just me. Gradually, the place began to fill up, and by July, just after July 4th, we were all there, and then there was that three months to get to know each other. Generally, with writers, it's been my experience that unless actively discouraged, you tend to write your last hit over and over until either the audience or somebody else discourages you from doing it. So people stuck to their strength for a while, and then a kind of cross pollinization started happening, and different people were collaborating with people that they didn't know before. And by the time we went on, a style that I think was unique to that show began to emerge. And then it went on. The reaction at the network was not favorable on that Sunday. The reviews were not great at the beginning. The reviewer for the New York Times, he didn't see the first show, but he reviewed the second show, and the second show was Simon and Garfunkel, or Paul was hosting, and he had already, he reviewed it as a music show, and people couldn't gauge what kind of show it was. I say, in a completely cliche manner now, that I knew what the ingredients were, I just didn't have the recipe. The one note we'd gotten from the first show, we did this piece called "Be Hospital, the sketch was just bees waiting in a maternity ward, and every now and then a nurse would come out and go, it's a worker. And then finally somebody came out and said, it's a drone. And the one overwhelming note we got from the network then was the bees thing didn't work. So of course I was determined then to bring that back the second week. They came out during Paul's show. He said, listen, you know, it, it didn't work last week, and uh, so I don't think uh, we can do it again. So. They all just kind of were dispirited and walked off. And then in the third show, we had them come on to a sketch that Rob Reiner and Penny Marshall were in. And John Belushi gave a very heroic speech, which was a little bit from the movie Billy Jack. By the fourth show, people were talking about the bees. It was exhilarating because we were literally making it up as we went along. And the intensity of the experience was so, so great that it pretty much fused us together. First of all, everybody was there 24 hours a day, and also, for most people, their office at Rockefeller Center was nicer than their apartment. So people tended to be there for the warmth of it and for the comfort of it, and also because it was just an exhilarating place to be. I think it was really midway through the first season that we began to understand that there was an audience that was watching it and that had discovered it it was much more countercultural which was the word that was used then and people kind of stumbled on it there were lots of other shows that challenged authority but they were all with some connection to another generation and we were the first to be scruffy and we weren't making the normal compromises that you had to make to stay on television because we were at 11:30 at night If I wanted to argue whether or not we should be doing something, standards was saying, I think that's inappropriate. Then I'd say, well, you know, it's going on at quarter to one. Every now and then we'd hit a nerve and switchboard would light up. But most of the time, once the audience that found us found us, and that, that audience kept growing. And by the end of the first season, we won the Emmy for Best Show. Chevy won an Emmy. We won Show, we won Writing. You know, it was...
0: Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
2: I think I am one of those people who's interested in a lot of things. I am, at my core, restless and easily bored. And I will do almost anything to avoid being bored. We read, I don't know, 40 to 50 pieces each week, trying to find 13 or 14. But it takes four hours to read them, and sometimes... I really feel that my life is slipping away from me to be sitting there when you're on page three of a 14-page piece that you know, but you can never say, okay, I think we're done with this, let's move on to the next piece. You read it because in that kind of community, everybody deserves to have their work heard, even if they're wrong or even if it's awful. As a producer, your job is to actively discourage creativity. Creativity is generally defined as, I want to express myself and I need a lot of time to do it. And if you're running a front page, there's only so many things that you can say are important enough to be on that front page. Art, in my end of it, is like life, only faster.
1: I remember the first and only time I did Saturday Night Live. I walked in, saw that schedule, I could not believe it. I was flying by the seat of my pantyhose. They've got six days to write, rehearse, and perform a live show. Each Saturday begins with an 8 p.m. dress rehearsal where they run the entire show in front of a live audience. Then Lauren listens to the audience's response and has one hour to cut sketches, revamp skits, and put it all back together again before they go live at 11.30 p.m., whether they're ready or not.
2: If a writer has solved his or her problem, and it is a piece that just glistens. It has a beginning, middle, and end. There's no fat in it, and it's eight minutes long. Before dress rehearsal, you can have that argument that I really think would be so much better at five and a half minutes, because I've only got 90 minutes, and there are a lot of other things I like. Then, if it plays to silence at dress rehearsal, people are much more open to making a cut. Suddenly all sorts of things are offered up that would never have been offered. At that point between dress and air, it's no longer an egalitarian place. It's a very clear cut this, lose that. And everybody knows since we only have one hour before we go on the air, we don't go on because we're ready, we go on because it's 11.30. And that tends to galvanize people's thinking and their behavior. Fatigue is your friend through exhaustion and through people just being so depleted, the stuff around the nerve endings gets worn away and other things begin to emerge and you take way bigger risks. Whether it's through impatience or the inability to just defend your game, things that you would normally not write or normally not say get written down or spoken. It's coming from the unconscious. It's not so much thought through as instinctive. It's the closest they are to their core sensibility, to who they really are, at least in in comedy. We look much less organized than we are. If you were to come in and observe, it seems very chaotic. There's an old joke about a comedian, a stand-up that I I worked with in the 60s called Stanley Myron Handelman. If you left monkeys in a room with typewriters sooner or later that, you know, write the works of William Shakespeare. And he said, I did that. And I put a bunch of monkeys in a room and I left them alone. And I looked in a couple weeks later and you know what? They were just fooling around. That's what we look like, like we're fooling around. And then suddenly on air, it's very disciplined. Everyone knows when it matters. The brilliance of the show, and I don't mean the on-air brilliance, I mean the brilliance of it as a form is that everyone is necessary till the end. If that guy isn't there to put that prop in your hand or that music cue comes in late or the writer didn't get those changes to cards, everyone needs everyone else. It's a team sport. It's one of the reasons I so connect to baseball. You play a whole season, you know, it starts in the spring and it's still cold and then it ends up, now it ends up pretty much close to winter and it gets cold again. During that time, there's a rhythm to it. You get used to the rhythm of it, and you know that it's incremental, and that there'll be slumps, and that there'll be periods where you're not hitting, and everybody understands the off day. When the show isn't good, it's not as if we don't know it. It isn't as if you, well, we just love them all. When that audience chooses to become quiet, you're taking full swing at the ball, and if you miss, you know you missed and performers will come off after a piece where there were misfires and you will see just the look on their face and quite often we'll make eye contact and I see what they see and you don't go, oh, I think it was way better than you thought it was. You don't say the word shake it off, but that's what it is. It's like, you'll get them the next time and hopefully they do. I tend to only see the mistakes. So I'll see the late camera cut. I'll see how somebody entered just slightly uh, differently into the sketch and the timing got thrown off. I'll see how the lighting shift didn't quite happen the way it was supposed to. I'll see something that was absolutely brilliant at dress rehearsal kind of flatten on air. I push people pretty hard, which I think you could get a a pretty strong consensus on. The only thing that justifies that level of abuse is the exhilaration of it working. Because when it does, it's a joy to behold. And when it doesn't, it's crushing. And I tend to wear it. In the 70s, I think, I wore it for two, three days. Generally now, by the middle of Monday, I'm on to the next. And no matter whether the show was good or bad, there's a new host sitting in my office on Monday afternoon, and we begin again. So there's always, just ahead of us, the chance of redemption.
1: Because Saturday Night Live is a live show Lorne has become a master of expecting the unexpected and controlling the uncontrollable. But the tragic deaths of John Belushi in 1982 and Chris Farley in 1997 were obviously beyond his control. In each case, Lorne had to reevaluate how much involvement he should have with the personal lives of his cast. And there's no
2: easy answer. I know this is a fragile point to make, but no one's ever died doing the show or around the show. People tend to die when they go to Hollywood, and I don't know what it is they do out there, but it tends not to be as supportive a culture as we have. I think that when we had in the 70s, in the phrase of the time, whatever gets you through the night, as long as people showed up and did their job, it was okay. And as long as it didn't interfere with the work, I didn't really feel it was my place to intervene. That was the beginning of that value system, which turned out to be wrong. And I think John's death was the beginning of that. At the end of the first season, I did a documentary on the Beach Boys and we went on the road with them for six weeks. Danny and John came with me as writers and we were on the road in California. And one night we had a night off and we went to Joshua Tree, which had a kind of magical quality for me. We were up late, John particularly was up late, around five o'clock in the morning when the sun first was sort of peeking through the window, uh, I I just started hearing noise, and I, I came to the door, and Danny was in the room next to me, and he was standing at the door as well, and there was John on the diving board doing cannonballs, and he'd do this trick, which he once he saw that he had an audience, he'd do this thing where he'd go straight up hit his ass on the diving board and then roll over into the water. And Danny turned to me and he said, you know, Albanian oak, you know, and we believed it. We believed that he was bulletproof. He could always come through. He always had. And that was sort of the guy I knew in 1976. John lived his life in like three eight-hour shifts. And if you were with him for one of them, you were exhausted at the end of it. And you thought... Well, I've spent the day with him, but then there were other people who, who spent the next shift with him. And he just had so much strength and energy and so much talent, you just thought, that's just who he is. And so when he died, it was infuriating, and mostly my first reaction was just anger.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
2: Chris Farley, who I say that he was the child that Danny and John didn't have. He used to tape, Scotch tape, his eyebrow as a boy to try and get it to do what uh, Belushi could do with lifting an eyebrow, which he would do as one of the bees or in Cheeseburger, Cheeseburger. He went through a hard transition because when he first came to the show, you know, he was just too big. You know, he'd play to the back of the hall, and there's a lens, as you know, right here, and so. But when he found himself, he started to feel the connection of what that was like. Then he kind of got in over his head a little bit. And one time after read-through, which not much that he'd done got chosen, he went to his office and he got messed up. And I heard about it. And then two days later, I put him in a, a clinic in Alabama. And he was there for three months. There's none of the, hey, that's just who he is. None of that anymore.
1: What's so phenomenal about what Lauren Michaels was able to do is that Saturday Night Live started out out of the box. And that's a really difficult thing to do. For him in 1975 to have the vision, the wisdom, and just the balls means that he's had his finger On the pulse of something that's going on with our country and understands it so deeply and profoundly that he can even make fun of it. That's a big deal.
2: We were defiant in the 70s because we knew that there was the audience that was never going to get it and then there was us. Standards have changed. There are lots of things that we did in the 70s that we would not be permitted to do now and lots of things that were taboo in the 70s that we do all the time. I can remember the amount of effort it took to get John Belushi into a dress to play Elizabeth Taylor, which is one of the most memorable things he did. That generation on the show would no more have gotten into drag because drag was at its high level, some like it hot, at its low level, Milton Berle. We do that kissing family sketch now. When the men kiss in it, it's not a peck in the cheek. They go at it and it's just the audience, well, The reaction is the reaction. It's truly funny, and they don't put those boundaries on themselves. But there was lots of stuff that we did from the 70s that maybe they'd be uncomfortable doing now. So things change. I think clever is overrated. I think it's better to be good than clever. And I think that when things come from a kind of place of intelligence, even if it is an unpopular point of view. Early last year, we did the first piece that roughed up Obama a little bit, and people went there was a little bit of complaint of like, I can't believe you would, you know, because he's heroic and he's admirable and he's trying his hardest and, and you go, so are we not supposed to mention this thing that, that happened that we all kind of took in, but because we're sympathetic, we're not supposed to, uh, that's not our job. Our job is to point it out. We're nonpartisan. That's the hard part for people to understand. Who's ever an authority, We're pretty much the opposition. It's not personal. Our effect of influence is, I think we're a safety valve more than we're a revolution, but we do change perception a little bit. When Tina came on with John McCain, when they opened the show, that was the Saturday before the Tuesday of the election. And I can't imagine any other country where this level of criticism would be endorsed and supported by the leadership. And I know that there's been great strides in Russia, but I don't think they're doing shows like that. I can tell you that I'm not sure you could do it in Canada, and I'm from there. And Canada likes to think of itself as a very open, free country, but it is part of whatever that American thing is, which is, it's a country founded on distrust of authority. Nothing represents that more than adolescence and certainly we are the best of adolescents. All we really have, because we don't have a wide shot to speak of, or any real spectacle or special effects, what we have is close-up, performance, writing, coming together, direct contact into the lens, and you at home see it and connect to it because it's what you were kind of thinking, and there's somebody actually saying it in a way that makes you laugh or affirms that you weren't the only person thinking that and the fact that we can be defiant the fact that we can question authority i don't know any other place in the world that you can do that and we do and that's the part of the show that i i think i'm proudest of and also the thing that i i think is the real impact that we have
1: lauren michaels spent a lifetime in pursuit of originality inspiration, and most of all, comedy. He's shown us the importance of going with your gut, of being honest with yourself and others. And you can think about that the next time you hear, live from New York, it's Saturday night.
2: The show means more to me now than it did at the beginning. I think at the very beginning, it was just all consuming. I began to think, by the third or fourth year, is this all I'm going to do with my life? And what about my other ambitions and dreams? And didn't I want to direct a movie? And then what about if I did this? And and I've gotten to do an amazing number of things, so there's no complaint here. Somewhere around, I guess when it was threatened, around 95, and I lived through that and lived through just really rough criticism. One of those periods where the critics and the network were aligned, I realized how I would feel if it stopped. I also know on a realistic level that it's a show that doesn't exist anymore. It's way too expensive, it's too unwieldy, it's too wasteful. Nobody has a you know, full band anymore or builds that many sets or goes out and shoots at, at, at four in the morning or reads 40 pieces. It's only because it's still there that it's kind of left alone. So I know that when I leave, someone with sense will say, do we really have to do it this way? I'd say the bulk of the staff that work on the show right now were not alive when the show began. And a lot of them missed the ones in the 80s as well. Things conspire for me not to get older, or at least not to feel older. If I leave the studio, I can tell that I've gotten older, but inside the studio, it's pretty much a a safe place. If we did the same thing every week, Or if we had the same cast 35 years later, you know, we'd all have guns in our mouths. The fact that new people come in every year, people leave, but the value system stays essentially the same. And I like to believe, and it is perhaps a conceit of mine, that even at the worst show we ever did, there is something that was worth it in that show. And if you go back and look, you'll go, oh, I didn't know that was from that show. There's always something where you go, oh, I'm proud of that. It might be a very small percentage in certain shows, and often you get a high percentage, but there's never been a perfect one. Should that ever happen, then uh, my work will be done.
1: I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast.